Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord God. It is written and preserved throughout the generations with a purpose, God, that it would, it would be communicated to us and it would be communicated to future generations so we would know the heart of God. Lord, so we look to your word tonight. We pray that you would speak to us, that we would grow a little more in Christ every time we gather together and that we would leave here changed and more conformed to the image of Jesus and that we would grow in our love for one another. And so we acknowledge our need for the Holy Spirit to do that work in us this moment. And we ask, God, that, that your Spirit would take the words and take uh, the message you've put on my heart and that you would do eternal work with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Digging Wells is the title of tonight's message. And there is much to be said and there was much to be written about with regards to Abraham's life, right? 14 chapters. Jacob's life is significant. We'll see a lot recorded about the life of Jacob. But Isaac, this guy right in the middle, there's just not a ton about Isaac's life. Just a few chapters. We know that Isaac was a man of faith. He's a man who prayed, right? Last week we saw him praying for his his barren wife, Rebecca, and God answered his prayers. We know he was a man of patience. He had to wait 20 years to see Esau and Jacob born. He was a man who trusted God with his very life. Remember when we looked at the sacrifice of Abraham, Isaac was likely a grown man when that took place, and Isaac trusted God with his resurrection. So Isaac is a godly man, a man of faith, and though he was not without fault, even as we'll see in this chapter here, he was a good man. And we're going to see in this chapter how he spent much of his life. And that is digging wells, dealing with the Philistines, grappling with the Philistines, sojourning in the land and digging a whole lot of wells. Okay, so let's jump right in. Verse one, it says, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So as we start reading this, guys, you're going to see it's almost verbatim what Abraham went through. So the the author had to write, this isn't the same as what happened to Abraham, though it sounds just like it. He says, not, he said, besides the, the famine that was in the days of Abraham, Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him. So this famine arises in the land, a time of distress and difficulty. Remember what Abraham did? He ran away. In fact, he ran to Egypt the first time. And Isaac perhaps has the same idea. He's heading toward Egypt and he's in the land, he's in a town of the Philistines, Gerar, where Abimelech, not the same Abimelech that Abraham dealt with, but likely his son, where he was ruling and reigning. And God appeared to Isaac during this difficult time. And it reminded me of something that God often speaks most clearly in our times of famine, most clearly in our times of distress, in our times of pain, in our times of difficulty. God often speaks very clearly. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but He shouts to us in our pains. And the message of God, the truth of God, has a way of just penetrating our hearts in those seasons of difficulty, our seasons of need, our seasons of vulnerability. And the Lord shows up and He said, in the end of verse 2 there, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. So God's message as he comes, this is the first time God has spoken face to face with Isaac. 
He spoke with Rebekah directly last chapter, but now as he comes to Isaac, he says, do not leave the promised land. In fact, it's the same thing that Abraham desired for Isaac. Thank God for godly fathers, right? Oftentimes the voice, if your father is godly, oftentimes it's his heart, the heart of the father and his pursuit of God is his words are needed, his wisdom is needed. Abraham's wisdom is what God gives Isaac right now. Don't leave the promised land. Don't go to Egypt. Abraham went there when things got tough. He fled, in a sense, the land of faith. And we went over that when Abraham went into Egypt. And what God is telling Isaac right now, he's like, don't depart from the promised land. I know it's tough. I know it's tempting to go into Egypt, but do not go back there. Now, Egypt, scripturally, is a picture of the world. It's a type of the non-believing world. And so, in a sense, for a believer to go to Egypt is to depart from the faith, is to walk away and just spend some time in the world. Jesus tells us the parable of the soils, right? The four soils. He said the word of God is like seed that, that was cast out. And our hearts are like different types of soil. And one of those soils was the rocky soil. And he said what happens with this rocky soil, there's a lot of rocks in it that, that represent compromise. And he says what happens is the word of God immediately takes root, the rocky soil is all excited about the word of God, but as soon as tribulation and persecution and trials arise for the sake of the gospel, that plant shrivels up. The rocky soil kind of people bail on the Lord. And this was Abraham's struggle and tendency early on in his walk of faith. And God is seeing this in Isaac and he says, do not go to Egypt. Do not depart. Guys, listen, I know the life of faith is tough sometimes. And you need, you need to realize, it will, there will be difficult seasons for you in Christ as you seek Christ. There are seasons of joy and excitement where you're just feeling like God is just present all the time. And you will have seasons where you're like, is God even there? You will have these difficult seasons of discouragement. Guys, you will even have seasons of depression. If you, if you follow Christ, I'm not going to lie and, and, and stand up here and tell you it will all be joy and butterflies and flowers and rainbows. It's not like that. It's a spiritual battle that you engage in when you choose to follow Christ. And there are seasons of discouragement, seasons of depression, down seasons, guys, that make you want to stop fighting the good fight. But that's not the answer. Quitting the fight, backing away from the fight, and running to Egypt is not the answer. It might be tempting for you at times, and I don't know if you've ever had these desires, to just stop reading the Bible. You're tired of the conviction. You're tired of the pressure. Just stop going to church. I'm, I'm going to stop giving my money to the church. I feel like I'm just wasting my time. I, I want to go and live like the rest of the world just for a little bit because the pressures of the faith are hard. So I'm going to go make money for me. I want to go pursue my hobbies. Guys, this might seem like a relief to the struggles within the faith, but it's not the answer. And it's something you will regret. Do not go to Egypt. That's not what God has for you. And let me tell you this, guys, you could depart from the faith and yeah, it can get a little easier because it is a fight to stay in the faith. It is a battle. And you could go chase after the joys of Egypt. But I want to tell you that Egypt will never fulfill you. Everything that Egypt has to offer you could be yours and you'll still be miserable because only God can fulfill you. Only Jesus can satisfy us, guys. That is the reality. So the Bible says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Look, to have little and to have distress, but to have Jesus 
is better than having the whole world and all the joys and all the great experiences of the world and lose your soul and not have Jesus. I'd rather have plan A. I'd rather have Jesus in the difficulties that come with following Jesus. And if you want true joy, then this is his encouragement to you as he encouraged Isaac, abide in the promised land. Abide in salvation, even when it's tough, especially when it's tough, guys. And as you do, you'll see your, your season of drought, your season of famine, eventually, in God's time, turn into springs of water, refreshment and joy, when God will restore your joy, realizing that He uses our seasons of discouragement to do deep work in our souls. He does great things. He allows this famine to come into the land and He tells Isaac, look, it's going to be tough, but ride this out. Do not leave the promised land. Do not go to Egypt. Verse 3, God tells him, sojourn in this land and I will be with you. And will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. So he tells Abraham or Isaac exactly what he told Abraham. All these promises, he says, are still true for you. Still true for your offspring. My, my gifts and my calling to you is irrevocable. I have not changed my mind, God is saying. And he tells him to do the same thing that Abraham was supposed to do, and that is sojourn in the land. Move throughout the land. And this is a cool picture of faith as well, guys, because the call to faith, you might sense the call to faith and the call to follow Jesus is the call to a boring life, is a call to like settle down. It's not. The call to faith is the call to adventure. It's the call to exploration, guys. And faith, though there are, see- there are down seasons in the faith, faith is really this big country that God is calling us to explore, much like, much like Israel, the land of Israel. He's like, you need to move around, sojourn in this country. And the same is true for our faith. It's, not, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive because if, if God was going to make a great nation out of Abraham and his family, it probably would have been smarter for them to settle down and start building cities, just like they did back in Babel. That was Nimrod's method. Let's really populate these, these areas and overtake these areas. And God's like, no, I, I want you to grow in this land, but I want you to do it as a pilgrim, not as a settler. And that's how faith is, guys. We grow more as pilgrims, as sojourners, than we do as settlers. And so, what does it look like for you to be a pilgrim rather than a settler? Well, it means that you don't live for here and now. You don't live for this world. But it also means that you, you be open-handed with things in life. Like, try new things. Try serving in different areas. Test out the various giftings you feel God has given you and see if God wouldn't open up doors for you. Be open-handed with where you live. Like, literally, maybe God's calling you literally to be a sojourner. Maybe God would call you to go to Boise or to to Austin, Texas and help Pastor Scott or Pastor Nick to be a part of a new work. But be open-handed. Be be a sojourner in the faith. Be willing to do something new, to step out, right? Be someone who moves and allows God to really guide you. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring, the Lord says, as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Hey, little side note there, guys. When you walk in accordance with God's will, it's a blessing to others. When you walk in accordance with God's will, that's how God wants to bless the world around you. With you actually being on fire for Christ. 
God's going to use that to bless the world around you. He says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So God's like, I'm, I'm going to do all these amazing things. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to grow your offspring. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you guys. And I'm going to do it because Abraham obeyed my voice. Because Abraham kept my commandments and my statutes and my laws. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that interesting that God would say that about Abraham. I'm going to bless you because your father obeyed me. Now, one of the things I don't like having to do is read a passage to you and then explain what it's not saying. But hey, sometimes you just have to do that, right? He's not saying that we should work hard like Abraham and earn, the, and, and earn God's blessings and merit God's approval. That's not what he's saying, right? We know you cannot earn God's approval because it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. The fact that God even came and had a relationship with Abraham was God's grace. Abraham did not earn God's favor or approval. He received it by faith. So we know he's not saying that. We also know that he's not saying, hey, as long as your parents are solid Christians, you're good to go. You're saved. Don't even worry about it. Don't sweat it. Because your dad, man, he was a strong Christian. We know it's not saying that either. Why? Because the Bible is clear. Everyone must believe for themselves. Everyone must have a relationship for themselves. Now, there's that, there's that side of it that, hey, I'm saved because of my parents. There's the other side that says, hey, I'm condemned because of my parents. And some people will say that. Generational bondage, generational cursing, which we'll get into here as we see sin passed down, as well as blessing from Abraham to Isaac. But I want to share this with you guys. Ezekiel 8, uh, chapter 18, verse 20. It says, The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So the Lord says, no, you're not going to be saved because of your parents, and you're not going to be condemned because of your parents either. So what what is the Lord saying here? As As He promises to bless Isaac because of Abraham's faithfulness. I believe God is really showing us here, guys, the power that our faithful actions can have on generations to come after us. Your actions have impact on your kids and on their kids and on the people around you and on the disciples around you in church, all the the Christians that are younger than you in the Lord who are watching you, your actions have impact. God is saying that Abraham's faithfulness has greatly impacted you, Isaac, has greatly given you the advantage. Guys, let me tell you something. If, If just one man or one woman in a family of people chooses to be on fire for God, chooses to live a life wholly devoted to God, all it takes is one, and that fire can spread. That faith can spread. The blessings of God will spread through that one individual. I saw it happen in my family. My family was largely secular growing up. My grandparents, they were Episcopalian, but like, you know, they weren't living for Christ necessarily. But I had an uncle, I still do, I praise God, I still have him. Uh, and his name's Bill, he's one of the lay pastors here. But he was a man who, when he was in his early 30s, committed himself to the Lord to be on fire for God, wholeheartedly. And let me tell you, it impacted me in a huge way. It impacted my brother in a huge way. His two nephews, who, who grew up really in a non-Christian home, 
saw his Christian home and we're both on fire for Christ. Like my brother, he's sold out for Jesus and I'm so proud to see the man that he's become in Christ. My uncle's sons, they love the Lord. They know the Lord. And to see this one man impact this next generation who we could have gone a lot different in a lot in a much different direction than what we have but because of my uncle's faithfulness to God we've received blessings and how is that blessing received well this legacy of faith has positioned me to walk in the faith I've seen the actions of a man of God in faith and now I see what that looks like it's positioned me to be able to do the same. It's positioned me to receive these blessings. So don't underestimate, guys, the impact that you can make if you just simply choose to believe God and walk faithfully in His promises like Abraham did. Now, as I said before, unfortunately, there's the other side of this coin, and that is our mistakes can have huge impact as well. Our sins can have huge influence on the next generation as well. And we see that with Abraham and Isaac. Verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah. Wait, haven't we read this a few times already? Yes, we have. But it's happening again. Goodness. Because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now that's, that's like a, a G-rated version of, of what the text is actually saying. She, I mean, they were actually like... It, 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 the, the original language carries the idea of, of physical intimacy. Uh, they were, it was PDA at the very least. And they were probably just straight up making out in this little alleyway, and Abimelech's like, hold on, I thought that was his sister. Well, maybe they have a weird family. I don't know the nature of that, that family. Maybe, maybe. And so he's like, wait a minute, this isn't right. So he sees them, uh, he sees Isaac really, some translations say, caressing his wife. Verse 9, so Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. So again, uh, we have Isaac now putting his wife at risk to save his own neck. Go back and listen to when we covered Abraham doing this. And we talked about how that's not the model of Christ. That's not what Christ did for us. Christ gave his life for the sake of his bride. Abraham and Isaac uh, just kind of cast away their wife, you know, for the sake of their own life. Unless obviously they want to make out and then they're going to go meet in an alley somewhere. I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking here, but he's like, I didn't, I didn't want to die. She's attractive. I didn't want you to kill me and take my wife. So I said, she's my sister. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now it seems here that this Philistine, this pagan king has a very high moral standard for marriage. But it could also merely be the fact that he heard the stories from his dad and was like, let me tell you, son, there's this family. They're kind of a weird family. Uh, this one guy was married to his half-sister, and they kind of looked alike, and he said she was his sister, and I believed him because, well, technically they, they were half-brother and sister. And I took her into my harem because she was good-looking, and 
Uh, and the, Lord, the God of these people, which was a real God, he actually came and talked to me. He was like, you're dead. You're a dead man. And all the women in your town are not going to be able to have babies because you just took this woman. So do not mess with this family. Okay? So it's probably more along the lines of, 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 of that. He, it's not that he has a high moral code necessarily, but he knew like his nation was on the brink of disaster last time. They took one of these promised girls into the harem. What have you done? He's like, I don't, I don't want to repeat the sin of my father. So anyways, he rebukes Isaac. And I got to say, guys, it's a sad day for a Christian when a non-believer has to call you out and rebuke you on, on morality. I don't know if that's happened to you, maybe at work or at school. But someone's like, yeah, that's very Christian of you. And you're like, you're going to notice right now? Like, of all my Christian witness, and you're going to notice the one thing I did wrong. You know? But it is, it's a sad day when a non-believer is calling you out on morals where you're, where you're falling. Hey, I thought you were a Christian, man. Why are you doing that? Man, may that not be the case for us, guys. May we really be, walk circumspectly to those in the world that we would not be that kind of a witness like Isaac, like Abraham was, right? Now, here we have these Philistines. And if Egypt is a picture of walking away from Christ leaving the promised land and going into the world, the Philistines are actually enemies within the promised land. The Philistines here are a picture of compromise within the faith. It's sin within the believer's life. And you guys know, you don't have to walk away from Christ to fall into sin. It's, it's accessible here and now. It doesn't have to be this big dramatic, I'm out of here, you leave church, and it takes you a week or two before you can actually sin. It's like, Sin is accessible right now. And this is a picture of the, this is what the Philistines represent, compromise in the believer's life. And Isaac goes to seek refuge with the Philistines and he does so, and he, he, he compromises by showing this lack of faith. Similar to Abraham, putting his wife in danger, worrying about the promises of God, whether or not God is going to see him through this famine. He goes to the pagan king and again, Lord, just as, uh, again, just as our faith has positive impact, our sin has negative impact on generations, on our posterity. Though it's important to note, guys, that we aren't bound by the sins of our fathers and mothers. So there is this doctrine that goes around, generational bondage, it's called. And like uh, some people will even say, it's the, you got a demon passed down from your, your parents and you can't help but sin. And we got to cast out this demon. And they'll say these doctrines that, that you're, you're bound to sin as your father sinned. That is not true. Because in Jesus Christ, there is freedom. Freedom for everyone. Freedom for every type of sin. There is freedom in Christ. It's been said that the good news about Jesus Christ, it's not that we don't ever sin. We still struggle with sin. But in Christ, you never have to sin again. Do you realize that? In Christ, we never have to sin again. But it's true that we are influenced by the examples of our parents. Like the sins that your father or your mother um, exhibited in front of you, typically those are the sins that you struggle with because you've been exposed to them. You've, you've seen what they look like. And you guys see, as we raise children, as we raise disciples in, in building the church and in building our families, our actions are what people learn. I want you to think about this. People watch you and will learn to do what you do. For instance, I'm up here, I'm up here teaching and preaching, and, and I'm telling you how to live your life. 
But the, strong, the strongest thing most people learn when they come to church is they learn to say what the preacher says. But because you don't see me up here actually doing it, it's just a sermon, it can be difficult for you to actually do what I say. Does that make sense? People will learn to do what you do. So if you're always coming to church and hearing a sermon all the time and you're never seeing Christ in action, you're going to learn how to maybe preach sermons. You're going to learn how to say all the right answers, but never actually do what you're supposed to do. And this is a problem, a huge problem, guys, in our homes today. This is a huge problem in the church of America today, in the church around the world, guys. Our biblical knowledge, when it's not coupled with right living, our children will grow up learning to say all the right things, but still doing all the wrong things. It's, it's tragic. So many people in America today claim to be Christian. There was a recent survey taken by the Barna Research Group, and they pulled 61% of these, these people they pulled claim to be Christian, which is actually pretty low for a Christian nation. In this poll, it was pre- pretty low. Only 6% of that group actually had a biblical worldview. In other words, only 6% of them actually believed in the morals of Scripture and in the deity of Christ and in these essentials of the faith. So many people claim to be Christian and yet they don't live it out. And we should ask ourselves, what, what, are, what are we harboring? We shouldn't believe Calvary Tucson or even Ignition Tucson that we're just, we have it all together. We don't do this. And those churches out there, they're the ones that, with all the messed up stuff. What do we do here? What do we do in our times of fellowship? Maybe that it's become normal to us that the Bible really doesn't condone. Or maybe the Bible even condemns. Are there ways that we are treating each other? Are there perceptions that we have about one another or things we've learned from our culture that we need to abandon? You see, a common one is sexual immorality. In the world, it's, it's just the norm out there for couples when they are dating to just start sleeping together and, hey, let's move in, let's try out this whole marriage thing before we actually get married. That's what the world does. Let me tell you, it's tragic how many Christians actually just do it. As a pastor, I do a lot of premarital counseling. I do a lot of marriage counseling. And I see this all the time. I'm I'm actually, it's sad, but I get so excited when I finally meet a couple who's actually honored God and, and saved themselves for marriage because it's so rare. In the church, we have said we know the right answer. Oh yeah, you know, abstain from sexual morality. Don't have sex before marriage. I know all those answers because I hear my preacher talk about it all the time. But in action... It's not lining up in the church. I don't know about you specifically, but I know overall it's not lining up. And we need to change that as a church. The church as a whole has done a poor job at modeling healthy marriage. I mean, Isaac and Abraham, they weren't, they weren't modeling healthy marriage with their actions. Tragically, how many pastors, especially lately in the news, it's come out that their marriage was a sham and the pastor's been sleeping around it's, it's tragic. Now, now, granted, you won't hear about the pastor with a healthy marriage. He won't make the news headlines, right? But we could do a whole lot better as a church. Capital C, the Church of America, at really demonstrating what healthy marriage looks like. Or maybe it's greed. Maybe it's worldly success. That's another common one, especially within Christian homes, these, 
These, these parents who like really strive for excellence and they have good intentions, but they really even overemphasize to you growing up that you have good grades, that you would uh, ha- have a, get, get your degree, that you would have a good career and make money. And they overemphasize this to the point where they're now heartbroken when their children grow up and go out chasing money and, and, and have no relationship with Christ because that wasn't a priority when you were raising your kids. All you told them about was the, how, how cool college is and how exciting it is when you can buy your own car and buy a nice house and emphasize all of these things that the world chases after that aren't necessarily bad, but you've underemphasized Christ. Like These are the ways in which, guys, our actions as a society do not line up with what we teach in the Bible. And you go, and I'll talk to these kids that have walked away, and they they still know all the right Bible answers. And that's what makes it so hard to witness to them. Because they know all the answers, but they don't live it. The actions are not there. And so we need to be very careful, guys, because our actions will translate to the next generation. We should examine ourselves, as Abraham should have, early on because his actions translated to the next generation that, well, my dad's a godly man. God's blessing him. And this is how he behaved. And so his children pick up the same sin. May our legacy be more of faith than mistake. Amen? Our standard for living, guys, is not our culture. It's not your family. As great as your mom or dad are, they are not the standard of living. Jesus Christ is. The Word of God is. Hi everyone, Pastor Sean here. We would love to invite you out to our in-person services. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus. In the meantime, keep reading, keep praying, and keep worshiping. God bless you.